Amen. Um, I have one thing to say before I pray. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Let's lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you so much today for your love, your grace, and your presence in this place. We pray that you would touch each of our hearts. Let us grow and be strengthened in you and glorify you. Strengthen the pastor. Bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, how many of you here were here last week? Yeah, a bunch of you. That was not cool when you let Craig take a picture of you, pretend to be sleeping, and text that to me down in Florida. That wasn't cool. We actually went to a, a church. Uh, we were on vacation, went to a church in Nashville, and, and, and the pastor is one of my advisors. Um, and so we just like, I didn't even tell him we were coming. We just came and sort of slipped into the back. And he was on vacation, so he wasn't there either. So I sent him a text message, un unknowing that you were going to pull this on me. I sent their pastor a text message, and I said, hey, I just wanted you to know, man, the, the sound system went out. The lights were broken. The preacher that you had was terrible. Like, it was not a good Sunday. And then I didn't hear from him for, like, three or four days. And I'm like, no, 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 just kidding. It was, it was a good service. It was fine. Um, I, I listened to Craig's sermon online. You can always go on our website and listen um, to our sermons. And I just want to say a huge thanks to Craig and to all of the team, the dream team, everybody who did an amazing job putting the service together, and, and it was just awesome. So I'm going to take the next eight weeks off. And um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, great job, everyone. I'm so thankful to be working with amazing, this amazing group of leaders. Um, okay, so we're going to, we're back in the book of Acts. We're sticking in the book of Acts. And so I want to start today uh, with a question for you to mull over. Um, you don't need to raise your hand. It's sort of a personal question. Uh, so just mull on it this morning. And the question is this. Have you ever wondered in the privacy of your own heart, in the privacy of your own mind, have you ever wondered, am I good enough? Have you ever wondered that question? Have you ever felt inadequate in some way? Have you ever lacked confidence in some area of your life? Have you ever wondered whether you're doing enough? Here's a big one. Have you ever compared yourself to someone else and then by comparison, somewhere in your heart just felt like you were not measuring up? Some of you are in school today and, well, not today, literally, uh, but you're in school in life and you're anxious about your standing with your other classmates. Some of you are single, and you're wondering, am I a good enough catch to ever find that special someone? Am I, ever, am I good enough? Some of you are, are married, and you're saying, am I a good husband? Am I a good wife? And a big one now is parents wondering whether they're doing a good enough job as a parent. Are you doing what's right for your kids? And, and, and all of us that are working or in the workforce, there are times when all of us wonder, am I good enough? Am I doing all right? We worry and are anxious about our status. We've all wondered, are we good enough? There's a, a recent poll. Um, it, it was just of men. And, and according to this poll, 50% of men confess to feeling anxious most of the time. That means one in two men walk around in a, a, with at least some degree of anxiety. Uh, that same poll 
according to that same poll, the majority of men aged 16 to 65 struggle to feel confident about their place in society. And, and then there have been other studies um, that show that women also underestimate their abilities on a regular basis, and they experience sort of a nagging sense of inadequacy. David Brooks, a political uh, and cultural commentator who writes for the New York Times, wrote um, a, a, an op-ed recently called The Problem with Confidence, and I'll just read you what he says. He says, the self-help books try to boost the confidence part of self-confidence, but the real problem is the self part. The self, as writers have noticed for centuries, is an unstable, fickle, vain, and variable thing. In other words, when you try to maintain a confidence in yourself, you realize that that confidence is like sand pouring through your fingers, and there's nothing really to hold on to. On a personal note, over share time, I sometimes struggle with this same issue. Um, I sometimes find myself asking, am I good enough? Sometimes I'm, I wonder whether I'm smart enough, whether I'm doing enough. I sometimes look at other pastors and other preachers, and I compare their abilities to mine. I sometimes will listen to, for instance, the podcast of Tim Keller, and I think I, I don't have that kind of political, that philosophical, not political, but philosophical insight that he has, or I don't have that same you know, exuberance uh, as John Piper or Francis Chan, or I don't have uh, the poetry of T.D. Jakes. See, I just don't have that, right? I said the poetry. Okay, never mind. Um, Or the finesse of Tony Evans or the lightness of John Ortberg or the organizational ability of Rick Warren. I look at these guys and I go, man, I'm I'm not like them. How could I possibly ever reach that level of spiritual insight and clarity? I'm not good enough. I'm not accomplished enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I don't measure up. Has anyone ever felt like that? Or are you going to leave me out there hanging just like just me? (laughs) Thank you. Or I would feel really not good enough. Um, So today's message is for everyone who has ever felt insecure or anxious. It's a message for anyone who has ever struggled with guilt or shame or discouragement or a sense of inadequacy. It's for everyone who has ever tried and failed, everyone who has ever experienced a regret because of something they did or didn't do in their life. And I don't want to overstate the content or the import of today's message, but today's message is the most important message in the entire Bible. The most important. You didn't know that you were going to come today and hear the most important message in the entire Bible. Um, Every other truth in the scripture points to the truth that we're going to explore today. All the other truths in the Bible are contingent upon the truth that we're going to explore today. This is the heart of, the core of, this is the very soul of everything the Bible is about and everything the Christian faith is about. So do you want to hear what that truth is? You do, don't you? Well, you're going to have to wait because I'm not going to give up my best material at the beginning of the sermon. I may not be T.D. Jakes, but I'm no dummy, okay? So you got to hang with me. Um, so we're going to dig into Acts chapter 15. And in the chapters that have led up to this chapter, I'll just briefly give you a thumbnail. We learned that Jesus, is, that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, appeared to his disciples, and he said, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to be with the Father, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to imbue you with power, and then you're going to go, and you're going to spread the message of who I am 
to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what began to happen. People from everywhere started hearing the message. And, and in Jerusalem especially, thousands of people became converted to Jesus. And because that happened, persecution arose among the political elites. And persecution doesn't lead to snuffing out the movement. Persecution actually leads to the spreading of the movement, right? So people are now saying, we've got to get out of Jerusalem. So now they leave Jerusalem, and these little pockets of Jesus communities start forming everywhere. And this movement is going crazy. It's exploding everywhere. And... and and that's really, really great. And now it's, it's leading to outsiders becoming converted. And people like um, uh, Greeks and Romans and Italians and Africans and people from all different walks of life are starting to join the church like crazy. And so this is a massive movement, and it's wonderful for the church. But it leads to a major, major controversy within the church. It was a huge controversy in the church. It was the first major controversy in the church, and it was so big and it was so troubling that it threatened to actually tear the church of Jesus Christ apart. What was this controversy, you are asking? What, 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 what was such a big theological controversy that even the church itself was threatened? Was it Calvinism versus Arminianism? Was it premillennialism? versus postmillennialism? Was it red carpet versus blue carpet? Was it wine versus grape juice? No, it was not. Um, what the question was struck at the very meaning of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, and it's, and it's discussed here in Acts chapter 15. So in the chapter, in Acts 15, we're in a church in a city called Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem, where a number of Gentiles, non-Jews, people like m- most of us, uh, we're finding Jesus, and here's what happened. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. It says, But some men came down from Judea to this church in Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, these new believers, these new brothers and sisters in Christ who were not Jews, Gentiles. They were teaching them, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And all the Gentile men in the church said, excuse me, come again. Um, And the the Judeans came down and said, yeah, no, that's true. You have to be physically circumcised in order to be saved. And not only that, you have to adhere to and observe all of the laws of Moses, all of the ritual purity laws, all of the dietary laws, all of the restrictions of the laws of Moses. And there are 613 commandments in the Bible, and you need to observe every single one of those commandments in order to be saved. There are 248 do's, do this, do that, do the other thing. There are 365 don'ts. That's one don't for every day. How would you like to wake up every morning and your devotion will be, don't. Don't eat shellfish. Good morning, God. Don't mix those threads. Good morning, God. No bacon for you, right? Every morning, It's a don't. But the Judeans were telling these new Gentile believers, yeah, in order to be saved, you need to adhere to every single one of these commandments. Um, And here's the thing. We know that this is legalism. We look, at, we look back at it now. We go, we know this is legalism. We know this isn't the gospel. We know this isn't what Jesus taught, right? But even today, we as a church and as the church struggle with this issue, right? 
Do we mix the law in? Do we make people jump through hoops in order to be saved? Or do we trust in Christ's sacrifice for people to be saved? I heard a story about a little church down in southern Missouri. All my, all my stories just include a little church down in southern Missouri because it's just it's amorphous enough that I can get away with it. Um, somebody's going to email me from southern Missouri and say, dude, let's move it to Indiana or somewhere, okay? Um, little church in southern Missouri. This woman comes to the church. She hadn't been to church in a long time. She was going through some stuff in her life. And so she comes to this little church, and she sits in the back. She doesn't know anybody. And uh, when she came to church, she didn't know what people wore to church. And so when she came, her outfit was a little bit, maybe a little inappropriate. Her skirt was a little too short. Maybe her top was a little too low cut or something. And so she sat back there in the church. And at the end of service, the pastor goes, and, and he's shaking hands with people as they're coming out, okay? And he sees this woman coming, and he gives her the up and down, and, and she comes over, and he says, listen, uh, before you come back to this church, you need to pray about what God wants you to wear when you come to church. And so she says, oh, okay. It was kind of a little taken aback, but so she leaves. Um, the next week, she comes back to church, and she's wearing the same thing. And uh, she sits in the back, and the preacher goes around to the back after service, and she comes walking back out, and he sees her, and she's, he sees she's wearing the same outfit. And he says, listen, I thought I told you to pray and ask God about what you should be wearing when you come to this church. And she said, well, I did. I did pray, and I did ask God that question. And the preacher said, oh, really? And what did God say? And she said, God said he doesn't know what I should wear when I come to this church because he's never been here before. (laughs) Oh, all right. Um, We have to be careful that we don't get more excited about keeping people out than letting people in. Letting people come in and experience the grace, the joy, the love of Jesus when they're messed up, when they're broken, when they're troubled, right? There's only two kinds of sinners— Irreligious and religious. Which one are you? Okay. Sorry, Southern Missouri. I'm going to leave you alone for a couple of weeks. Uh, so this debate arises in this church. And it becomes a huge controversy. And the debate, in a nutshell, is this. Is Jesus' sacrifice alone sufficient to save us? Or do we need to do something in addition to this act in order to be saved? Are there additional personal requirements in order to be saved, or is it simply sufficient for us to put our faith in Christ? And this debate reaches a boiling point in the church in Antioch, so much so that Paul and Barnabas, and and Paul and Barnabas were, by the way, ticked off at the guys who were coming and preaching this message. And so they got into the big, you know, controversy, and they started all bickering very loudly about it, Paul and Barnabas dissented, and I'll read you sometime Galatians, because Paul reserves his harshest, like most unsettling, almost inappropriate language for people who try to make, other, make Christians uh, observe the Mosaic law. But anyway, so they're, they're fighting about this, and they decide, okay, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, I guess down from Antioch. We're going down to Jerusalem, and we're going to talk to the elders. We're going to talk to the apostles. We're going to talk to Peter. We're going to talk to James. We're going to talk to the people who are with Jesus and all the elders in that church, and we're going to have them settle this matter. And this is called the, the Jerusalem Council. So they, they, they all go to Jerusalem. Um, and, and the Scripture says... 
In verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, these are the ones who, was tell, who were telling everyone that you had to be circumcised and so forth, the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said at the council, it is necessary, they said, to circumcise these Gentiles and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So that's their position. They're, they're holding to that position in front of the elders and in front of the apostles. Are you with me? And so uh, they lay out their case first. And, you know, in retrospect, we might say, oh, man, they don't know what they're talking about. But at that time, we have to give them some credit because all their life, they had been trying to observe the law. All their life, they had been rigorously practicing the law. They had been praying. They had been following all 613 commandments. All their life, they had been walking down this path. And now, all of a sudden, all of these yahoos from Greece and Rome and U City want to glide into the kingdom of God without going through the same rigmarole that they had to go through. And so they're saying, this isn't fair. It is not fair and it's not right for these Gentiles to just glide into the kingdom without having gone through what we went through. They're mad. It's like when somebody cuts in line at the store. I used to be really nice about that. I used to be like, you know what? He's probably in a hurry. But I don't know what has happened to me. I'm, I'm, not, so I'm, not, I'm like, hey, buddy, line's back here, pal. Thank you. To the back. That's me now. Sorry. If I ever do that to you in a grocery store, pray for grace for me. So the Pharisees are saying, look, this is, this is like, you know, a pledge wanting to join a fraternity and they don't get hazed or, or a 19 year old kid wants to join the Marines and you're not going to put them through boot camp, or somebody wants to wear Esquire on the back of their name, but they don't have to pass the bar or they want to call themselves a doctor, but they didn't go to med school. I mean, they're saying, look, you, you know, you have to go through some stuff before you can have this identity. You need to work for it. You don't just get it. So they lay out this position, and it's, a, it's a somewhat of a compelling position. Then it comes time for the apostles to speak, and Peter speaks first. And I love Peter because Peter is such a, if you read the gospel, any of the gospels, Peter's the guy, you know, and you know this. Peter is the guy who, who, who sort of bumbles into stuff, who makes mistakes, who screws up, who runs away, who's a coward, and Jesus keeps loving him. And saying, you know, I can use you. And, and, and Peter ends up becoming a hugely important figure in the church. So Peter stands up and he basically says, guys, you know that God chose me to go and preach to Cornelius, the Gentile. And the Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius, as Craig preached last Sunday, and, and, and saved him. God saved Cornelius. Uh, and he did it without Cornelius having to undergo all of this stuff that you're talking about. And so in verse um, 9, Peter says, God made no distinction between us and them, between us observant Jews and those non-observant Gentiles. Having cleansed their hearts, he says, by the good works that they did for thousands. No, by faith, right? By faith. Good. I'm, I, I'm glad I didn't have something else up there. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test, Peter says, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we, even us observant Jews who have followed the law all the days of our lives, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And everybody did what everybody's doing in here. It's quiet. 
Everybody fell silent, right? Because this is a group of people, they, they know Jesus, but they've been brought up and steeped in the tradition of their fathers and in the Mosaic law. And they followed this law all their life. And Peter's saying, it's by grace through faith in Jesus that even we are saved and them. Peter says, look, you guys can't follow the law. Really, you can't. I can't follow the law. None of us can follow the law. And really, he says, that's the point of the law. The point of the law is to reveal our imperfections. It's to reveal to us our sins. The law's purpose is to reveal our failures and our shortcomings. It's not there to save us. It's there to enlighten us that we need a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. He says, uh, none of us are saved by our rigid observance to the law. All of us are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. The great 19th century evangelist Dwight L. Moody was apparently, if you read a little history about him, not the model Christian applicant when he went to the 101 class at the Mount Vernon Church in 1855. Uh, uh, apparently, he, he applied for membership at his church, and here's what the growth track director, we'll call them, at, um, at his church back in 18... This is, the, this is the, the Verl and Darlene Kleins of Mount Vernon Church in May of 1855. Here, here's what the growth track director, Edward Kimball, says about him. He says, this is historically, he writes, I can truly say that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than his was when he came into my Sunday school class. <laughs> this is, this is, this is D.L. Moody. This is like one of the most important preachers in the last, you know, 200 years. Um, 300 years. Um, he, he, he was spiritually darker than anyone I had ever seen before. And I think the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely to ever become a Christian. Still, less likely to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. In other words, this guy was a train wreck. This guy did not have his ducks in a row. This guy didn't even know whether he was a Christian. But Moody recounts an experience that he had with one of his teachers that radically transformed his view of God's love and God's grace. And he says that he, 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 as a young man, was angry and rebellious and was pushing back at, at everything and breaking the rules. And one of his teachers told him to stay after class one day. And so he thought that his teacher was going to issue this really harsh punishment on him. And what happened is his teacher, and he was itching for it. He was ready for it. He wanted to fight, right? So he, he comes to, to, to this, this moment with his teacher, and the teacher sits down, and she says to him, she says, you know what, I can't, if I can't run this school by love, then I'm, I'm not going to run it at all. And she says, you know what, I love you, Dwight. And if you love me, please try to obey the rules of this school. And that was it. And he said that something rose in his throat, and he turned to her and he said, you know what, you're never going to have another problem with me. And she never did. Because it, it, somebody extended love to him. Somebody accepted him for what he was. It wasn't that she didn't have expectations of him, but she came to him with love. And that radically changed his view. Um, as we know that Moody went on to preach to, to groups of 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people, and he just became a, a massive force uh, in the Christian world. 
And that is the difference between grace and love. Uh, grace and law, rather. Law says, do this or else. Grace says, I love you and I accept you just as you are. Now, if you love me, obey my commandments. And when you fail, grace says, I'm going to stoop down in the muck and I'm going to get dirty with you and I'm going to pick you back up and I'm going to pull you back in. Under the law, when a man sins, he's taken into the town square and he's stoned to death. But when the prodigal son comes home, He's met by the flung open arms of his joyful father. The law says, kill him. Grace says, kiss him. The law says, strip him. Grace says, put your coat over his shoulder. Put your ring on his finger. The law says, bind him. Grace says, loose him and let him run to me. That's the difference. So let me ask you. You're worried that you're not good enough? You're not. But he is. Put your identity in him. You're worried that you're not doing enough. You're not. But he did it all. Place your rest in him. You're worried that you're not righteous enough. You're not. But he was a perfect and spotless lamb. Wash yourself in his righteousness. Because it's not about what you do. It's about what he did for you. Amen. So back at the Jerusalem council, you know, they have this debate uh, and they finally come to a consensus and they decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to write a letter. We're going to send it back down to Antioch uh, with Paul and Barnabas. And here's what it says. And I'm going to read you the letter. Dear Gentiles, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Do well. Farewell. That's it. A short, clean, tight letter. Now, you read this letter and you say, wait a minute, there are some do nots in there. So are they saying, you know, you do have to observe the law or what are they saying? They're not saying that. What the letter is doing is two things. Number one, it is specifically freeing the Gentiles from any demand that they become observant Jews, that they circumcise themselves and become followers of the law. It releases them from that requirement. And secondly, it outlines some basic principles that will assist the Gentiles to remain spiritually healthy and also to remain in close community with their Jewish brothers and sisters. In other words, the letter is saying you are totally and completely free in Christ. So now exercise your freedom in a way that doesn't re-enslave you and doesn't make your Jewish brother or sister stumble. Don't let your freedom be a stumbling block to others, but you're totally free in Christ. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourself. And the scripture says that the, that the Gentiles in Antioch rejoiced. You better believe they rejoiced. Thank God they were free. They were in. They had joined the kingdom of God because of what Jesus did for the world. And as we're going to learn in the next few weeks, this turned into, I was going to do a six-week Acts sermon. This is week six, okay? So we're, we're going to extend it just a little bit. Um, and in, in the following weeks, we're going to see that the church absolutely, totally exploded. The doors were completely flung open, and people from every race, every tribe, every, every background came to Jesus 
flocked to him all over the world. Why? Because for the first time in the history of the world, men and women from every imaginable background discovered that they had access to God, not by what they did, not by their social standing, not by their status in the world, but by what Jesus did for them. Some people may say, well, look, if we're completely reliant on grace, does that not give us a license to sin, and then we can just be debaucherous and do whatever we want to do, right? If that is what you think, then you completely misapprehend what grace is all about, because grace changes a person. When a person experiences the loving grace of God, they are not trying to find a loophole to continue sinning. They are trying to run as fast as they can back to the loving arms of their father. They're not trying to come up to the edge of sin just to see how far you can go. You're trying to get as far away from that. doesn't mean that you don't fail, that you don't slip up. But when you do, you desperately try to get up and run into the loving arms of your Father. That's what grace means. When you're full of grace, you want to serve him. You want to honor him. You want to make him proud. Grace changes you. I'm going to close with this story that I, I've been following for several, several months now. Um, and it's a story that was highlighted in Riverfront Times here and also on This American Life. And it's about uh, a local man, Webster Groves man named uh, Cornelius um, Anderson. His friends call him Mike. Almost a year ago, Mike experienced a terrifying event. At, at about 36 years old, Mike was a happily married man. He had four kids. He owned his own contracting business. He built his own home in Webster Groves. He had a trampoline in the backyard. He was a coach. He was a member of a church. Uh, And then one morning, last July, Mike woke up to a loud banging on his front door. In his pajamas, he comes down from the upstairs, and he says, Who is it? And he hears on the outside of the door, U.S. Marshals, open up or we're breaking it down. He opens up the door and a swarm of officers with helmets and shields and guns drawn pour into the house and they grab Mike and they cuff him and they put him on the ground and he says, you guys, I think you've got the wrong guy. And he says, no, Mike, we don't have the wrong guy. We have the right guy. As it turns out, about 13 years earlier, when Mike was 22 years old, he and another guy committed a crime. They went out to St. Charles and they robbed a Burger King manager of a night drop deposit when he was 22. Mike was immediately arrested. He was tried and he was sentenced to 13 years in prison. This is back in 2000. But because of some clerical error, either at the courts or the Department of Justice, Mike was never actually taken into custody. Think about this. He committed a crime, arrested, sentenced, You're going to spend 13 years in prison. Okay. When do I go to prison? Um, You'll be contacted. Calls his attorney. Hey, no one's, I mean, where do I, do I just drive to prison? I mean, do I have somebody drop me off? Is it like going to the airport or how do you do this? There was just a clerical error. They forgot to, to bring him in. Weeks go by, then months, then years. Nothing. The legal system totally forgot about Mike, and he never went to jail. Instead, he built a life in Webster Groves. He never had another run-in with the law. He didn't change his name. He didn't try to hide. 
He wasn't on the lam. He registered his contracting business with the Secretary of State. He just went about living a normal life, got married, had kids, moved on, thought, I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to move on with my life. But last July, somewhere in the computer systems of the Department of Justice, a notice came up that said, it's time to release Cornelius Mike Anderson from prison. So the officials go to release Mike Anderson, and that's the first time they discover they don't have Mike Anderson. And so they issue a warrant, and U.S. Marshals swarm his Webster Groves neighborhood, block off the streets, guns drawn, come in and nab Mike and take him to jail. His wife and kids and business associates and local parents and everybody, church members, everybody, stunned. Because Mike had never mentioned this event in his background. Just kind of didn't really want to go there. Let it go. So there was no precedent for Mike's case. On the one hand, there were people saying, look, he committed the crime. He needs to do the time, right? He needs to go to jail anyway. Just, you don't get out just because there's a clerical error. He needs to go in and do the crime or do the time. On the other hand, there were people saying, there's no point in sending this guy to prison now. He's already rehabilitated. He's got a life now, and he's got a family. And, you know, it's your mistake. Like, let him go. In fact, the victim of the crime, the Burger King manager, was interviewed and said, the guy has moved on, folks. I've moved on. Let's all move on. Leave him alone. And so briefs were filed, appeals were made, arguments were heard, and on May 5th of this year, four weeks ago, Mike Anderson stood before a judge in Charleston, Missouri, to hear his fate. Would he go to jail for the next 13 years, or would he go back to his family? The judge said, Mr. Anderson, you've been a good father, You've been a good husband. You've been a good tax-paying citizen of the state of Missouri. That leads me to believe that you are a good man and a changed man. The judge then told Anderson that he would receive credit for the time served from 2000. As such, said the judge, your sentence will be fully served and satisfied today. Go home to your family, Mr. Anderson, and good luck to you. When Mr. Anderson was interviewed later, he said, When I woke up this morning, I was just praying for the best. I was expecting God to show up and show out, and he did. The crime was committed. The trial was held. The evidence was presented. The verdict was rendered. The sentence was read. But on that day, mercy prevailed. And a judge had grace on a guilty man. Mike Anderson was released back to the life that he he had been building for the previous 13 years, back to his wife, back to his kids, back to his work, back home, a totally free man. Here's the radical truth of the message of Jesus Christ. It's not that you're good enough. It's not that you're righteous enough. It's not that you're innocent. It's not that you didn't commit the crime. It's that he stepped in and took your punishment for you when he hung on the cross so many years ago. Your crime was committed, your trial was held, your evidence was presented, your verdict was rendered, your sentence was read, but on the day you put your trust in Jesus, mercy prevailed, grace trumped the law, love won, and you were set free. So when you ask yourself, am I good enough? 
Just remember that none of us, none of us are good enough, but he's great and we belong to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We know, Lord, that we can't do it without you. We know that we don't have the strength on our own. We know that none of our righteousness, none of our holiness, none of our own personal goodness can measure up to who you are. We're condemned under the law. But Lord, we thank you today for your grace. We thank you today for loving us when we were unlovable, for reaching out to us when we seemed unreachable. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We give you all of our love, all of our honor, all of our mercy today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, can we?